You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Heads up, this episode is a little more sweary and angry than usual. I'm marking it explicit, uh, nothing too terrible, uh, but for sensitive listeners or work environments, you might want to skip it for now. Ah, Chicago. This is Chicago. 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago. When you stop your city, lay down, you're low down way. You can't tell what's gonna happen. Some old day crying. Tell me, baby, what the world's matter with you. Stop us. Everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Oh, yeah. My kind of town. I work in stories, and when you work in stories, you're always looking for one that will illustrate the essence of character. Like Honest Abe Lincoln walking three miles to give back six and a quarter cents to a woman he'd accidentally overcharged. Or that old Dave Barry axiom if someone is nice to you but rude to the waiter, they are not a nice person. These sorts of stories are never perfect, they never tell you everything. But with the right one, you can explain something 
critical, something essential to understanding a thing and impossible to grasp otherwise. And when you find a good one, you just want to tell everybody. So, here's the story I tell people about Chicago. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Abraham Lincoln once said, I am a firm believer in the people. If given the truth, they can be depended upon to meet any national crisis. The great point is to bring them the real facts and beer. That's what I've got for you today. This week's episode, Real Facts and Beer. Chicago and beer go along like beer and hot dogs, or hot dogs and Chicago, or Chicago and hot dogs and beer. The city has always had its favorite brew. Nowadays, there's thick competition. Half Acre, Revolution, Metropolitan. I'm partial to two brothers myself. They're not technically a Chicago operation. They're based out in Warrenville, but who cares? Cain and Abel and Domaine DuPage are two of the most wonderful beers you can hope to drink. Before the current crop, there was Goose Island, who still make pretty decent stuff and still make it here in the city, even though they were bought out by Anheuser-Busch years back. You can keep tracking it back from there. Old style has always been made in Wisconsin, but for decades it was THE Chicago beer, with old style signs hanging from nearly every corner bar in town. It had some competition from Miller Lite, because Miller Lite had originally been Meisterbrow, which had been Chicago's favorite son for almost a hundred years when it was bought out and transformed in the 70s. Several of the city's major thoroughfares are named for its brewers. Diversity Parkway cuts from east to west on the north side, dividing the neighborhood of Lakeview from Lincoln Park and Logan Square from Avondale. Michael Diversity was a German immigrant who, along with English immigrant William Lill, bought up an old brewery which was appropriately called Lil and Diversi, but later changed its name to the arguably even more appropriate Chicago Brewery. The brewery Diversi bought was originally called Haas and Seltzer, which had been formed in 1833, the same year that the town of Chicago was incorporated, and four years before its city charter. In 1839, Lil bought into it, along with William Ogden, namesake of Ogden Avenue, and Chicago's first mayor. Ooh, yeah. Even more than its beer, the history of Chicago is a history of its crummy mayors. The competition for best mayor of Chicago is thin. It goes Harold Washington and that's it, Harold Washington. If you don't know about Mayor Washington, there's a whole This American Life episode about him you should listen to called Harold. Uh, If I start talking about him, we will be here all day. Harold wasn't the only good mayor the city ever saw. He was just the best by a long, long margin. Joseph Medill was pretty decent. He won in 1871 as the candidate for the Union Fireproofers, a local political party that existed explicitly to rebuild after the Great Fire and to create better safety, labor, and building standards in the city. Still, Medill's greatest political accomplishment came not from when he was mayor, but when he was editor of the Chicago Tribune, which used to be, fun fact, a newspaper. It was Medill's Tribune that convinced Abraham Lincoln to run for president, and arguably Medill's Tribune that won him the race. Carter Harrison Sr. did a fair job, too. He got most of the streets paved, and during the Haymarket riots of 1886, walked with protesters to keep the police from harming them. But it's the prize for worst mayor of Chicago that our story is interested in awarding. That field is a lot more crowded. 
Mayor Michael Blandick is best remembered for the 1979 blizzard that crippled the city for days. Richard J. Daly was a gruff and grafted bigot who ruled the city like a king from 1955 until his death in 1976. He's best remembered now for calling in the cops and National Guard to be protesters at the 1968 Democratic Convention. And with George McGovern as President of the United States, we wouldn't have to have Gestapo's tactics in the streets of Chicago. But he also fought desegregation tooth and nail, and on the night of Martin Luther King's assassination, gave this order. To shoot to kill any arsonist, and to issue a police order to shoot to maim or cripple anyone looting. I was disappointed to know that every policeman out on the beat was supposed to use his own decision. So, he can fuck right the hell off. His son is no peach either. Richard, or Richie, M. Daly, ran Chicago from 1989 to 2011, and he was as corrupt as his dad, if maybe slightly less outwardly bigoted. Under Daly II, city contracts mysteriously seemed to always go to friends and family of the man himself. His administration was marked by police brutality, privatization, including one particularly short-sighted bit of idiocy where he sold the rights to the whole city's parking to Morgan Stanley for half a billion dollars, which he spent in the blink of an eye. If you were to look for one of those essence of character stories for Richie Daly, you could do worse than the tale of Miggs Field, a small downtown airport that the city had maintained since 1948. Daly hated Miggs Field, so he had it bulldozed at midnight, while there were still planes left on the runway. He hadn't consulted or told anybody about the plan, not Chicago's alderman, not the governor, not even the FAA. He suffered no consequences. The most notorious of Chicago's mayors is William Big Bill Thompson, who presided over the most corrupt city government in American history, even putting New York's boss Tweed to shame. Big Bill lived on patronage and shakedowns. He oversaw the Chicago race riot of 1919. On July 26th of that year, 17-year-old Eugene Williams accidentally floated into the Whites-only section of the 29th Street Beach and was stoned to death as he struggled to swim back to shore. It's difficult and maybe useless to suss out whether white Chicago feared reprisal or felt emboldened, but one way or the other, they stormed black neighborhoods over a period of days, burning down between one and 2,000 homes and killing 38. For his part, Big Bill Thompson stood back and let it happen, refusing to call in the National Guard for four days while the Chicago PD allowed, encouraged, and even participated in the violence. Thompson's legacy is even worse than that somehow. He's best remembered for cozying up to Al Capone, essentially ceding control of Chicago to organized crime in exchange for a series of kickbacks and favors, which included the Pineapple Primary, where Capone secured Big Bill's re-election in 1928 by bombing 62 poll places, campaign offices, and newspapers who supported his rivals. But even Big Bill Thompson can't snatch the gold medal. Of all the crooks and racists and mobsters and power mongers to ever hold the office, I'm going to argue that the worst of them was Dr. Levi Boone. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. If something is preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. They will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment in under 24 hours from signing up. This isn't self-help, it's professional counseling, provided at your own pace. Send messages to your counselor anytime and get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to leave your house. BetterHelp is committed to offering great therapeutic care at an affordable price. It's cheaper than traditional counseling, with financial aid available, and you can change counselors anytime you need. What's more, it's available worldwide, with counselors specializing in areas that might not be available to you locally, like trauma, self-esteem, stress, LGBT matters, depression, or anxiety. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, and there's a reason why. Their service is convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. And by The Great Courses Plus. One of the many things I love about The Great Courses Plus streaming service is that you learn from actual experts who know how to teach. The Great Courses Plus employs real professors who have spent years studying in their field and who know how to teach and engage with people. I've been enjoying the course America After the Cold War, the first 30 years. It's taught by Dr. Patrick N. Allett. It's a fantastic look into the recent past, including the presidency of Bill Clinton and the conflicts of Bosnia and Kosovo. But with a vast selection of subjects, The Great Courses Plus truly has something for everyone. Maybe you want to delve into astrophysics or learn to be a great writer. Or maybe you're looking for someone to teach you how to practice mindfulness in these stressful times. No matter what you want, The Great Courses Plus has material for you. And with The Great Courses Plus app, you can learn anytime, anywhere. I love this streaming service. Join me and see for yourself. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. Right now, my listeners can get a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library. So don't wait. Sign up today for your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Levi Boone had a few claims to fame. For one, he was the grandnephew of folk hero Daniel Boone, which for some reason got a lot of people wet in the mid-19th century. He was also one of the only actual educated doctors west of Ohio in those days. And he was a veteran of the Black Hawk War, where he served as both cavalry and surgeon. But Chicago mostly knew Levi Boone as the man who had divided the First Baptist Church. In 1843, he was an elder for the congregation when he stepped up to the dais to give a lecture before the parishioners. For the next 40 minutes, Boone delivered a highly technical speech on the godliness of slavery. 32 members of First Baptist left the church in disgust and headed across town where they founded the Tabernacle Baptist Church, which explicitly excommunicated Boone and anyone of his persuasion. Really, take a minute to chew on this. Dr. Levi Boone was widely regarded as a bigot in the mid-19th century by white people. That takes some hateful elbow grease right there. But it didn't stop him from getting elected mayor of Chicago thanks to the American Party. In the 1840s and 50s, the American two-party system was a shambles. The Democratic Party was having a bit of an identity crisis of its own, but the real train wreck were the Whigs, who pretty much fell right apart. This power vacuum was quickly filled by a host of new political hopefuls, including the Anti-Masonic Party, the Liberty Party, the Free Soil Party, the Republicans, yes, those Republicans, and, most importantly for our story, the Know-Nothings. The Know-Nothings were so-called because they were a secret society, about which members were to say they knew nothing if asked. If you got them drunk and asked them again, they might tell you that they knew what the real crisis facing America was. Catholics. In the 1850s, a wave of Irish refugees fleeing the Great Hunger, a British-imposed famine, came to the United States. They, along with Germans and, to a lesser degree, Italians, presented a threat to the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant native-born majority. A lot of Americans, particularly urban Americans, didn't like these new immigrants. They didn't like the work they were taking, and they didn't like their religion. Conspiracy theories abounded that all of these Catholics were being sent to the U.S. as part of a secret vanguard organized by Pope Pius IX to take over the country Red Dawn style. 
various secret and semi-secret clubs with subtle names like the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner and the Order of the United Americans and the Organization of United Americans began to formulate plans for an electoral and legislative agenda to stop these nefarious papists in their tracks. One of the bizarre things about the Know-Nothings is that you couldn't be sure who was a part of their ranks. Robert T. Conrad became mayor of Philadelphia in 1854, running on the Whig ticket, and only was outed as a know-nothing well into the race. That same year, John Thomas Towers won the mayor's office in Washington, D.C. A know-nothing became mayor of San Francisco. Another became governor of California. And, most incredibly of all, know-nothing Nathaniel P. Banks not only was elected to Congress, but became the Speaker of the House. The know-nothings were on the ascent, and there was no reason to keep the secret any longer. In 1855, they came out of the woodwork, forming the American Party. It's not easy to pin down the exact beliefs of the American Party. Some American Party chapters were in favor of slavery, some in abolition. Some were for larger government, some for small. Most, but not all, were in favor of temperance to one degree or another. But they were all unified by a common hatred for immigrants. Boone nabbed the American Party's nomination for mayor of Chicago, where the know-nothing influence was particularly strong. Tens of thousands of Irish and German immigrants had come to Chicago to help build the Illinois and Michigan Canal, and the so-called native-born people of the city didn't like it one bit. These Catholics threatened the white order of the city, which, again, imagine being so devoted to xenophobia that you scream, you're not white, to Germans. Boone had run for mayor a first time in 1850 and lost to James Curtis. But in 1855, he had the American party on his side. The mayoral campaign only began five days before the election, with Boone announcing his late candidacy against incumbent Democrat Isaac Milliken. But debates about wider municipal matters and positions had been ongoing for months. Levi Boone ran an explicitly xenophobic campaign, stoking fears of immigrants by saying they were criminals and rapists. He also erroneously accused those immigrants of widespread election fraud, even though, as it turns out, it was actually Boone and his American party who were probably rigging things. Oh, how the times have changed. But even stoking racial resentments and disenfranchising immigrants and liberals wasn't enough to deliver Boone to City Hall. There was one other very important factor. People didn't vote. And hey, if you're already not having fun with this analogy, just you wait and fucking see. In 1855, most civic matters were handled locally, on a neighborhood basis, so the citizens of Chicago left it up to the elites and business class to work out who should govern them. The matter simply wasn't seen as important to their daily lives. Until Levi Boone strode into office, along with seven American Party aldermen behind him. The first action he took as mayor was to ban all non-native-born Americans from serving in city jobs, including a new organization he built that we call the police. For centuries, there were no cops, only the Night Watch, which walked the evening streets and was staffed by a hodgepodge of volunteers and criminals who had been sentenced to serve as punishment for civil offenses. Yes, you're right, that does sound like a bad idea. 
In the daylight, most larger cities had a day watch, but it was usually made up of just a handful of court-sworn constables serving warrants. But in 1854, Boston formed the first modern police department, in large part in order to help protect free blacks and immigrants from unruly mobs of nativists. So, good on you, Boston. Chicago went the other way. Boone united the day and night watches into one Chicago police department, the first militarized, uniformed police force in the world with the express purpose of intimidating immigrants. Needless to say, corruption took root almost instantaneously. With the CPD, Boone had his army. Now it was time to have his war. On beer. First, he raised the price of liquor licenses from $50 to $300 a year. Then he changed the length of those licenses. Where they once had to be renewed yearly, they now came up for recertification every three months. As coincidence would have it, the pubs, taverns, and beer houses that catered to Irish and German clientels got the worst of these semi-regular inspections and were cited, fined, or shuttered in great numbers. Then, Boone signed an executive order to prevent the selling of beer on Sundays. This was couched as a moral matter, but everybody knew the truth. The Germans and Irish on the north side worked six-day weeks and spent their Sundays after church at beer gardens. Sunday beer wasn't just a way to relax. It was the spine of the community. And Boone was trying to break it. On April 21st, Boone's Chicago Police Department made a show of force, sweeping through immigrant communities and arresting tavern keepers and other quote-unquote unrulies. Nine people were taken to trial at the city court, but they were followed by droves of protesters. Outside City Hall, the crowd was tense. One officer pushed a protester to the ground and things started to get out of control. Alderman Stephen LaRue was there to try to keep order. He climbed on top of a wagon to call for cooler heads. My friends, he said, and then the police pulled him down, dropped him on his head, and arrested him, too. And that was that. Police broke up the protests and drove the immigrants back over the Clark Street Bridge. Then, Boone called in for reinforcements and ordered cannons to be brought to City Hall, aimed north towards the rabble-rousers, who were regrouping even then. Within hours, thousands of Germans and Irish started marching back down Clark Street in force towards the heavily armed police and militia waiting for them on the other side of the river. When the spearhead of the protesters began crossing the bridge, Mayor Boone ordered it opened. Now today, Clark Street has a drawbridge, but at the time it was a swing bridge which opened sideways. So it stranded dozens of marchers on a wooden island in the middle of the water. And that is when the police opened fire. Officially, only one person was killed, though Northside residents whispered of many more uncounted casualties for years to come. It's not like the Chicago Police Department has a history of suppressing things like that. Once Boone believed the opposition was sufficiently cowed and frightened, he ordered the bridge closed again, believing that the wounded and demoralized immigrants would scatter back from whence they came. Instead, they fucking charged.
Before the battle was done, dozens of protesters were injured, and at least two officers were shot, though both survived. After the crowd finally dispersed, Boone declared martial law and locked down the city for days. But thankfully, he was finished. The immigrants, who had long been largely apolitical, were now awoken and organized. And even the downtown wasps, who had nominally supported Boone, began to abandon him in the face of his heavy-handed policies. The Sunday beer law was dropped by June, and a statewide prohibition vote was shot down with the help of a young Abraham Lincoln. None of the beer sellers or protesters who were arrested were ever convicted for anything. And by the end of the year, Boone and his seven know-nothing aldermen fled office in shame. Years later, he was held as a prisoner of war at Camp Douglas for trying to free Confederate soldiers and for his work on the Reverse Underground Railroad, which kidnapped escaped slaves back to the South. Like I say, the worst mayor ever. The 1855 beer riot is the story I like to tell to explain the character of Chicago. It shows our hard-headedness, our temerity, our will. And it gives a very specific message to any bigoted idiot looking to send his own private army to have their way in the city of Chicago. We have taken the Clark Street Bridge before, and if we have to, we can take it again, goddammit. Music for today's episode by Lee Rosevere, Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin McLeod, Ben Toons, and Kansas Joe McCoy. I told an earlier version of this story at the Paper Machete, and that live audio is available to the Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Join them at patreon.com slash theconstant. We're a part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, whose latest show, The Briny, has a new episode out now about how COVID is changing the ocean through quiet, and how that newfound oceanic silence presents new opportunities for whale researchers. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends. Until next time, now as always, from Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. The Constant.